Shalom and welcome to Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Mary Mansman, and I'm joined by a very special co-host today, my friend and boss, Kali Foxman. Hi, Kali. Hi, Miriam. I'm very happy to be here and to be talking about Jewish food with you today. Yes, Kali and I are going to be speaking with Joan Nathan. Joan is the author of 11 cookbooks, including her latest work, King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world, which was named one of the best cookbooks of 2017 by the Washington Post and received the 2018 IACP Award for Best International Cookbook. A three-time James Beard Award winner, her previous cookbook, Quiche's Cookles and Couscous, My Search for Jewish Cooking in France, was named one of the 10 best cookbooks of 2010 by NPR, Food and Wine, and Bon Appetit magazines. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times and Tablet Magazine. She's had a PBS show, been a guest on numerous radio and television programs, and among other accomplishments too mind-boggling to mention, she's received a special recognition award for the Institute of Jewish Research for her work to preserve Jewish food cultures. Joan will be here in Boston on Thursday, July 26th at the Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Cooking School for a cooking demonstration, book signing, and reception. We're very excited to speak to her today about the event, her cookbook, and her career. Joan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. We'd love to hear a bit about your book, King Solomon's Table. You showcase more than 170 diverse recipes from across the diaspora and give the context, the histories of the dishes. What are some of your favorite recipes in this book and why? Oh, wow. That's like asking me, what are some of my favorite children? Right. <laughs> there are a lot. There's one that's very, very old. It's a chickpea pancake. And, you know, if you look at Soka, which is uh, the chickpea pancake from Nice or Farinata from um, Italy, they always say that it's 19th century. Mm. But I was able to discover that people were using chickpea flour at the time of the epics of Gilgamesh, and that the the kind either you would use chickpea flour in a gruel, as you would use other flour, or you would use it fry it in a um, pancake and this is what the early Jews used and it and today of course with all the gluten-free everything mm-hmm. um, it's so delicious with any kind of vegetable strewn into it and on top of it some other I put lots of salad different things and it's a wonderful wonderful vegetarian vegan mm-hmm. dish but non-vegans will love it too so that's a very, very old dish. And then, I don't know, I love my challah in the book. It's got um, fennel seeds and it's very delicious. Um, there are just too many dishes that I like. That sounds delicious. Um, so what's the significance of King Solomon in terms of ancient Israelite food culture? Well, I wanted to focus on the connection between ancient foods and modern. And at first I started studying King David and I realized he was much more of a warrior. And that King Solomon was somebody that, um, he was the first foodie as far as I could see. He wanted, when he built his temple and his palace, he wanted 
to gather not only women, he had 700 wives according to the Bible, but different herbs and spices and foods and, and um, precious stones from all, all over the then known world. So each month he would send a tribe of Israel. Each tribe of Israel was tied for a month to bring back the spices, the, the gems, the stones, the wood from all over the world to embellish the, the, um, the temple and also for people to eat. So they brought in peppers and cardamom and ginger and cinnamon. And, um, you know, he, I realized that he loved all these things and he must have had wonderful aromas if he ever went to the place where the harem, which is always outside the um, palace in the ancient world, because all of these women, including a uh, daughter of the pharaoh in Egypt, would have brought their spices and their ingredients from home to where they were living. And so, and, he, he, and it was known that he had wonderful foods in his palace. So that's why I chose him. I chose the name of King. You know, it's sort of a, a metaphor for what was right. good and delicious and smart. Right. <laughs> so one thing that we like to highlight here at Jewish Boston is the geographic and cultural diversity of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And the diaspora covers so much in both time and space. What kind of through line continuity or distinguishing characteristic can be found throughout Jewish food the world over? Well, I think that there's one main thing, of course, it's the dietary laws, the Jewish dietary laws, even if you don't follow them. They're in the back of your mind. I really believe that. And it's, you know, from Mount Sinai that, that this direct connection to what a Jew is supposed to do. And, um, you know, meaning separation of meat and milk, no uh, shellfish, kosher meat, um, and also meals that are connected to holidays throughout the year. And it's something that I really believe, especially the meals connecting you to the holidays, just um, they, feed your, they feed your soul. And this is what we find all over the world. And I feel there are two other things that define Jewish food. One is this obsession about eating um, and the obsession about finding food that will confirm to the dietary laws. From, the, from ancient times, Jews were always in the grain business. They've been in the wine business. They've been bakers um, throughout history. And you know, I find this over and over again. Um, and, and, and they're food writers, and now there's so many Jewish chefs, and it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting. But the third is the Jews have been kicked out of so many countries, and they've kept these traditions with them, and they've, but they've adapted them to the countries that they've gone to. And I'll give you an example. In my book, there's food from the Jews of El Salvador. And I went to visit the hundred and so, about a hundred Jews that live in El Salvador. And there was a Shabbat dinner for me. And um, people were asked to bring foods that they made. And one of the dishes was a, instead of a potato latka, 
it was a yucca latka with cilantro cream. And I thought, what a beautiful variation on what's, you know, something that's been eaten since the 19th century. And that's typical of Jews around the world. And that's what's so fascinating about the diaspora. And I think the, the next latest trend is going to be in restaurants, not Israeli food, but the next one is going to be Jewish diaspora food. You've lived in Israel. What do you find to be most interesting about the Jewish food culture in Israel versus the Jewish food culture in America? Well, I think, um, number one, that it's, it's, for everyday food, it has gone to the land of Israel rather than the Jewish diaspora. Jewish diaspora, perhaps, for um, holiday food. But, uh, you know, chickpeas are, are native and um, olive oil. I mean, when I lived there in the early 70s, people were using vegetable oil. And here's the olive oil. Now they're using olive oil. But then they thought vegetable oil, because I guess it was a processed oil, was better to use. And now it's going back. Um, the, the difference is people, even if they're not particularly kosher, will have dairy meals for breakfast and dairy meals for dinner. Um, you know, this kibbutz breakfast, when I lived there, wasn't the hotels didn't have such a panoply of Jewish cooking from right. all over the world, but they did have lots of um, salads. And the, you know, the so-called Israeli salad where you cut up everything wasn't, um, was just plopped on the plate and you cut it up for yourself when I lived there in the early 70s. They had hummus joints and they had falafel joints, but there was very little of um, restaurant food. And if it was restaurant food, it was really pretty awful. And of course, um, food in restaurants wasn't as great as it is now. Um, the hotel restaurants relied on kosher food as it was known then, which meant boiled chicken and boiled potatoes. It was not very good. It was mostly Ashkenazi. Um, it's totally changed now. So that food is not something that you are ashamed of in a social, socialist state. It's something that people just adore. One really fascinating part of the research you did into these recipes that you've got collected in the book was accessing Geniza collections. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you learned from these records that were new to you and changed your perception? Oh, so many. Um, first of all, that in the Middle Ages, uh, people would use the Geniza, which was really a treasure trove of ephemera. Mm -hmm. when uh, theoretically when you use the, the name of God but not always there were shopping lists um, written on parchment on goat parchment sheep parchment also paper um, there were lots of letters with um, which were pretty interesting letters where one merchant would write to another saying that he was sending a basket of rice to them. And in the basket would be certain spices like cardamom or turmeric 
that were supposed to increase male potency <laughs> and had a high tax on them as they would come through one country to another. So they'd put them <laughs> in the rice so they should know that they were going to be in the rice and they should pick them out as gifts. And um, somebody from Egypt was sending to Aden um, wheat so that there could be wheat for the Sabbath. So that was really interesting. And um, there were lists like for, uh, with Swiss chard and chicken, notes of what to get for the Sabbath. You know, because if you have more than six or seven things to pick up in a marketplace, you usually forgot them. You're going to forget something. So you would write them down, whereas there wasn't that much written down. A lot of it was stored in your brain. But um, this was, so you got a sense of what people would have eaten, let's say, in the 13th century for the Sabbath meal. I, I think the Ganesh is fascinating, and there are a lot of wonderful books about it. The um, Sacred Trash is one. I forget the other one. It's by an, a, um, an Indian writer. Sort of he pieced together a whole story of the Ganesha. And um, I went to uh, Cambridge, and I went to a lot of other libraries where they had examples from the Ganesha. Um, you know, which was found at the end of the 19th century in a, um, a, a synagogue in Cairo. They just found this stash of, of, of pieces of paper. It was really interesting. And I was just in the south of France um, in uh, Carpentras, and they found a, a Geniza from the 14th century that they're just plowing through now. That's so amazing. I always think that there's so much that we can learn from these uh, collections and people don't really think about it, but there's just, it's everything. It's the smallest aspect of everyday life and it just sheds so much light on, you know, every every part of their existence, including food. So that's really Absolutely. amazing. Yeah. So Joan, what dishes do you plan to make at your upcoming event here in Boston? Oh, I, I think that we're doing the chickpea pancake. We're going to be doing several delicious dishes and um, salads. And I think we're doing King Solomon's cake. Sounds delicious. But it will be fun. It's going to be, I, I, hopefully I'll be able to mix culture, history, and food. What could be more delicious? <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Uh, so we have a few speed round questions for you. The first is, um, what is one dish you could eat over and over? Oh, there's so many. Um, I love eggplant salads. Doesn't matter which kind. I just really love them. I love brisket. I love, and I like trying really, I, you know, whenever I go to a restaurant that I know is slightly Jewish, I'll see if there's a brisket on the menu and I'll taste it. Um, uh, oh, I know, I, at, you know, this is the summertime and I'm on Martha's Vineyard and I just can't wait for my tomatoes to be ripe so I can make something that they call it matbucha, they called it mamara, they call it um, salad juive. It's a, it's a, it's a cooked down tomato salad, sometimes with eggplant in it, sometimes with peppers. And it is so delicious. And especially in the summer when tomatoes are so ripe and wonderful. 
I could also, you know, I, I also like to eat things like, uh, let me do, well, like mushrooms and I like food. That's the problem. That's been my whole problem. You know, I like food my whole life. What is um, one of the biggest mistakes that home cooks make? Oh, let's see. I think there. I think home. Some a lot of home cooks are afraid of themselves, and afraid to experiment with what's in their refrigerator. So let's say you have a recipe um, for vegetables, and you've got broccoli in the refrigerator, and you want to incorporate it. Try it. Don't be afraid. No recipe is something that's totally firm. You can play around with it. Um, and that's what I do. Like, I'm having a dinner this week, and I'm going to, I'm making challah, but I'm going to use the Red Fife native grown challah on Martha's Vineyard just to see what it tastes like. And then I'm going to put in, usually at this time of year, I would put in rosemary from my garden, but I have um, anise in my garden this year, and chervil and tarragon, and I'm going to dice them all up and put lots of herbs in this bread. I don't know what it's going to taste like, but it's certainly going to be good, and it'll be an experiment, and I'm, I'm going to be having fun with it, and I think that's what um, home cooks really need to do because it becomes tedious if you're making the same thing all the time. Yep, that makes sense. We should all experiment a little bit more. Um, so speaking of hollow, what is your best tip for baking the perfect hollow? Oh, there are a lot of them. Um, one, I would make have two risings. That's and make I put mine in the refrigerator sometimes, and it it makes a longer rising. And I think also what I do is I do an egg wash first when I first braid the bread and then I let it rise for about a half an hour and I do another egg wash so it's going to be nice and shiny and I sprinkle on all kinds of herbs. I mean, most of the time I I put on nigella seeds and anise seeds in the winter and in the summer I just do fresh green herbs on top and then bake it. Sounds great. And lastly, um, what is your favorite ingredient to cook with? Uh, you know what I like to cook with best of all? Eggs. I love eggs. And onions. I love sauteing onions. I like putting onions, like red onions, in my salad. I think it's imperative that every cook should have at least one red onion that you can shave a little bit off and dice it. For every salad, it adds color, and there's a sweetness in red onions that I love. And uh, I also, in the morning, I very often will saute a little bit of onion and put it in with my eggs. And I like eggs in so many different ways. I mean, for breakfast, and I incorporate them, of course, in so many different things. Um, but I don't like them. I, I notice in a lot of these of the restaurants today, there's egg is protein in your whatever dish you order has a soft boiled egg or a, a poached egg on top. I don't like that. I like my vegetables with vegetables, but not with eggs. So Joan, we want to thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to speak to Kali and me today. Well, thank you. And I 
hope you'll come to my cooking class. We would love to see you there. Um, listeners, to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Thanks again, Joan. 